Hello and welcome to the Matt Belair podcast. As an explorer of the mind and world, author and coach, I have spent a lifetime learning how to push my limits and achieve my highest potential. My mission is to bring you the most inspiring, conscious, and empowering teachers, leaders, and thinkers on the planet. To bring you stories, lessons, and messages that will help you master your mind, body, and spirit. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. What's up, beautiful podcast family? I hope that you're having an amazing day. It's such a privilege and an honor and a pleasure to be with you again. We have the man, Dr. Will Tuttle, on for this episode, and uh, he is an extraordinary human being. We've entitled this one, Why Going Vegan Why Going Vegan Can Create World Peace and Shift Humanity, Origins of Hurting Culture. So uh, he is the best-selling author of The World Peace Diet. He is a former Zen monk with a PhD, um, so he's a He's a fascinating, intelligent character. In this one, we talk about um, how Will walked around the U.S. with his brother uh, at an early age just asking the question, who am I? Um, How food can create conflict, his work as a Zen monk, uh, 90-day meditation from 3 a.m. to 9 at night and what he learned from that, Um, inheriting cultural narratives, going beyond what we think we are. Um, You know, he kind of glossed over how he just got his Ph.D. and traveled the world playing music, like... Will is extraordinary. This is an amazing episode. I broke it up into two parts. Um, If you guys like the podcast and you've listened to one or two and you want to support, please take an action and go over to patreon.com forward slash Matt Belair and chip in a buck. You can support the show for as little as a dollar. And and if you guys take that action, it really does help go a long way. But most importantly, what you can do is do one act of kindness today to show your support. So just do one act of kindness. And I want to thank my friend Christine Vanderpool class who I met at Burning Man. She's incredible. Um, And she uh, contributed on Patreon. So thank you so much for doing that because it really helps keep the show going. It does um, make my life a little bit easier as I work on this for you. Um, I want to thank my sponsors, Purium and Sync Tuition. Sync Tuition's state-of-the-art 3D binaural beats. Uh, You can go to bit.ly forward slash gamma waves. And Purium, you can get a $50 gift card for premium health products if you go to bit.ly forward slash activate health. For those of you guys reaching out for coaching and you want speaking and things like that, now basically for coaching, what I help do is overcome blocks, limiting beliefs, teach you how to program your mind and body uh, to create the goal that you design, um, which is like maybe a, a life that you are more passionate about or making an income from your passion or clearing limiting beliefs or whatever, but doing it from a place where you are complete and fulfilled now. Um, this goes into everything from flow state, peak performance, visualization, hypnosis, um, all that kind of stuff, belief repatterning, you know, it is all in there. Um, and it's also all in the Zen Athlete book. So you could take Zen Athlete and call it Zen Life. So if you like the podcast and you want to have practical tools, check out Zen Athlete book in the program there. Uh, gift it to a friend. It's truly a, a great book. And, um, you know, especially give it, teach it to yourself and then teach it to your kids. That is the most important thing. Um, what else do we got? Oh, yeah. If you want to sign up for the email list at mattbelair.com, please do that. And if you go to forward slash lucid dreaming, there is a guided lucid dreaming, lucid dreaming hypnotic audio. And there is an ebook to teach you how to lucid dream quickly and easily. So that is it. Thank you for all the support. Before we get into this, what I'll invite you to do 
has come into a quick state of peace and coherence and spread love to all the podcast family in the entire world. So wherever you are, just taking a deep breath in through your nose. Hold that breath and just let it out slowly with all the cares and all the worries and all the troubles of the day. Taking another deep breath in through your nose. And this time, focus on the feeling of love and gratitude for yourself. Just making this mental commitment to be as loving and as kind and as compassionate to yourself as possible. Connecting to universal life force energy. And just let that breath out slowly with all the self-limitations, the self-criticisms and self-doubts. Taking another deep breath in through your nose and really double this feeling of love and compassion and gratitude. And I want you to send out this energy of encouragement, of love, peace, gratitude, and fulfillment to all your friends, all your family, your coworkers, and to everybody in the planet. And I'm sending you all of that energy now, all of my encouragement, my energy, my support, my uh, well wishes for anything that you want in this life so that you can live a fulfilling, peaceful, happy, abundant life. And just... Receive all that energy from all the people that you've touched, everyone who's on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on this episode, for committing to being a better you. Um, And that's it. We are ready to get into part one with the incredible Dr. Will Tuttle. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Master Mind, Body, and Spirit Show. I'm your host, Matt Belair. Today's guest is an award-winning speaker, educator, author, and musician. His music, writings, and presentations focus on creativity, intuition, and compassion. He presents regularly at conferences, retreats, and progressive centers throughout the world. A former Zen monk with a PhD in education from UC Berkeley, he has worked extensively in intuition development, spiritual healing, meditation, music, creativity, vegan living, and cultural evolution. In centers, he typically presents in the morning special music, meditation, and message. Later, gives an educational seminar on developing intuition as well as a concert of original music. These are intended to generate inspiration for personal and planetary awakening. Welcome to the show, Dr. Will Tuttle. <laughs> thank you, Matt. Great to be here, and thank you, everyone, for joining the conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. I, you know, I was introduced to you by my friend Thomas Masink. I think that's how I pronounce his last name, but a Burning Man friend of mine uh, reached out out of nowhere and said, you got to get this guy on your show. So then I looked up your work and I was like, holy smokes, I definitely agree. So it's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. I love that uh, your background, Zen monk with a PhD, like that's like my hero right there. So do you want to uh, just give us a little background on yourself and, and all the amazing things you've been up to? Great. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I basically, I, I think I'm a lot, I'm like a lot of people, uh, growing up, uh, I was, I think somehow wounded, uh, having to compete and trying to get ahead and see other people as separate and forced to eat meat and dairy products and eggs, which I just did because everybody did. And, um, but I think I was very fortunate that I started questioning uh, the violence in the world when I was in college, especially the Vietnam War was raging. And, and so I started uh, exploring yoga and Zen and meditation and you know, alternative um, ways of thinking about the world and uh, questioning capitalism also. And uh, just got a, started just questioning a lot of things and left home with my um, younger brother, Ed, when right after college, we decided to go on a spiritual pilgrimage. 
And uh, we discovered the writings of Ramana Maharshi, who was a sage from India, who said that what you should do with your life is ask the question, who am I? And go deeper and deeper with that question until you find out. <laughs> and it's not something you can figure out with your mind. And so we walked, you know, we walked for um, quite a few months. We, we headed west. We, we were going to try to walk all the way to California. We walked as far as Buffalo, New York. And then we headed south and we walked eventually all the way to Alabama. And as we were walking, we were meditating on this question, who am I? And also uh, started to question just our relationship with animals. I remember going fishing, for example, this, this uh, guy let us stay. We didn't have any money. We were walking the whole time without money and living for quite a while, quite a few months. And we were, um, uh, you know, we were hungry, you know, quite often. So <laughs> I remember... Uh, um, this guy said we could stay in this in this cabin he had by a stream for a couple of nights, and they had fishing poles. And I remember uh, going out and catching a couple of fish to eat. And we also did some kind of searching for wild foods, berries, and and um, some roots and things. And so we we did, but it was pretty meager what we could find. So I really wanted to eat those fish, but I remember having to kill them you know, and just slam them down and they didn't kill easily. They wouldn't die easily. And I remember just thinking, there's something wrong with this. Here I am meditating every day for peace and healing and justice and, and, and harmony and awakening on the one hand. Then here I am taking this poor fish out of the water. She was minding her own business and I'm slamming her down and beating the heck out of her and I'm going to kill her. So I just thought there's got to be a better way of living. And then interestingly enough, a few months, maybe a month or two later, this was in, I think, Pennsylvania, we got to Tennessee and we ended up at this community called The Farm, which at that point was the largest hippie commune in the world. There was about uh, almost nine, about 900 people were living there and they said, we're all vegetarians. And um, they had about 200 and they were actually vegans. They had about 200 children that were vegan from birth and they were all thriving. And so I was expecting, you know, if they're all vegetarians, that they would be kind of sickly and weak and, and not getting enough protein and, you know, that kind of thing. And they were not like that at all. They were vibrant and healthy and happy and very enthusiastic and really trying to create um, an example of how we can live on this planet uh, in harmony with the earth, partly by growing their own food, uh, birthing their own kids, building their own houses, educating their own kids, you know, doing everything without interference or help from the government and corporations and um, kind of going back to the way it used to be. And I love the, um, the spirit that they had and uh, it really kind of touched me. And I remember asking them, so why are you guys vegetarians? We, you know, we would today call them vegans in the sense that they didn't eat meat or dairy products or eggs or honey. And they said, well, we're doing it uh, for two reasons. One is, did you know that most of the food we're growing, instead of feeding hungry people, we're uh, feeding it to these animals? And they're very inefficient at converting grain to food, so it causes food shortages, and food shortages are the main cause of, one of the main causes of war and conflict, when people don't have enough to eat, and there's this in, built-in sort of structural injustice, then you're going to have conflict and, and war. And so we're eating lower on the food chain, so there's enough for everyone to eat. And so that was really uh, very uh, noble, I thought, you know, that they were really making an effort not to just talk about the problems, but do something about it. And then the other thing was, um, they said, you know what these animals go through? 
that people are eating. <clears throat> and I said, oh, I don't want to hear about it. You know, but the, the guy just told me a few things. And I think we all know, but just described a little bit the hyper confinement of pigs and cows and chickens and how they're very often banging their heads against the bars, driven into insanity by the the abuse and the confinement and forced all these drugs and mutilations of various kinds. And, and so it was like he, it was like Toto, you know, on the wizard of Oz pulling the curtain back and suddenly revealing what's really going on. It was like in that moment and the next few days, I felt like the curtain was pulled back and I, every, every day I was eating breakfast, lunch and dinner with these people and they were meals of uh, vegetables and grains and so forth, no meat or dairy or eggs. And so I realized you can do this. You can actually live this other way and eat these other foods. And it was kind of primitive back then. I mean, we made our own vegan ice cream. You know, it was terrible, but it was all we could figure out how to do. It was, it was the first vegan ice cream anyone ever made, I think, on planet Earth. <laughs> it was called Ice Bean. And, um, but it was, you know, it was, it was something. And it's great to see the progress that's been made since then. But basically, that was it. I've never eaten meat in my life since then. And that was back in 1975, you know, so that was like 43 years ago. And, um, and then I, uh, I, I realized that now looking back on it, you know, this was a community that was actually inspired by Buddhists. I mean, it was a Buddhist, it was a Zen, it was a Zen inspired community. The, the main uh, leader of the community, uh, his name was Stephen Gaskins. He and his wife, Ina May, they started the, uh, the spiritual birthing uh, and they, they wrote a book, uh, the, the people at the farm wrote a book, The Spiritual Midwifery Guide, which my sister used actually to deliver her three kids at home. And it's been just a great thing, you know. But they were um, students of Suzuki Roshi of the San Francisco Zen Center, who founded the San Francisco Zen Center. And um, <clears throat> so I, I was already very interested in Zen. And I realized that this basic question that I was working on, the uh, who am I question, uh, from Ramana Maharshi, it's actually also a Zen koan or Zen question, um, w which is a meditation question to go deeper into, into self-understanding for, for, for spiritual awakening. So um, after the farm, my brother and I continued walking south, and we walked to Alabama, to Huntsville, Alabama. And there, believe it or not, there was a Zen center there, and we ended up living in this Zen, this, it was a Korean Zen center. So we ended up living there. And one thing led to another, you know, we lived in these uh, Zen meditation centers for quite a few years. I, we ended up uh, in Atlanta, and then eventually in San Francisco at the Tibetan Buddhist Center, and then at the Korean Buddhist centers in San Francisco Bay Area. And then eventually ended up uh, shaving my head and becoming a Zen monk and living in Korea as a Zen monk. So this was interesting because I, I was already used to doing a lot of long retreats. I had done 10 day, 20 day, 30 day <coughs> retreats, 40 day even, uh, all by myself sometimes or sometimes with a group. And so I was used to just really looking within, which was kind of different for me because I was raised really active. I was really into sports, did played hockey and skiing and basketball and baseball, every possible sport, I was into it. But I, I really felt this calling in my early 20s to, um, to do this other kind of sport, you know, to, to try to, to take the adventure on, on an inner level to find out who I am. And so at the Zen monastery in Korea, we would get up <clears throat> at 2.40, about 2.40 every morning, and the, and the meditation would start at 3, and we'd go till 9 o'clock at night. And it was in silence and it went for 90 days, you know, so it was 
really uh, just sitting on the floor. You know, you couldn't move, you know, basically all day. <laughs> and, um, but I found that as the, uh, again, you know, I, I already had quite a bit of experience in meditation, but I found as the months went by uh, that their, the mind um, got more aware of the fundamental truth, I think, that each one of us is not, doesn't exist as a separate self. There's this basic narrative, you know, and I, I really think that the narrative is very important. There's a basic narrative that's going on, in, I realize, in my mind continuously, and it was always revolving around this me, the separate self that, that, that I had created <clears throat> with my history and my likes and my dislikes and my, my goals and ambitions, whatever it is. And it was all kind of part of a cultural program that I had uh, inherited, really, in many ways, from my parents and teachers and the media, everything. So this whole narrative is going on, and it's my life. And I, but I realized that beyond that, the, there is this infinite sky of consciousness that is actually the true nature. And it's hard to put this into words, but... But what I realized was that the separate self that I am, in many ways, is an illusion. That I, I have all these wounds, really, that have made me contract around wanting this and wanting that and not wanting that and keep that away and <laughs> all that stuff. And I'm, I'm trying to impress people and, you know, this whole thing is self. That is such a heavy weight to carry around. <clears throat> and, and then realizing that it doesn't even exist, actually, that, it, that it's a sort of a a figment of imagination of a, it's a narrative. It's a story that's just told in the head and we're all doing that and, uh, and trying to impress each other and trying to, and, and then, and our suffering is so real to us and, and so forth. So um, I think that combined with the fact that I was, I realized at a deep level, and I want to talk about this more, the, um, the abuse of animals for food it was so much a part of my life, and uh, although I was over it at that point, but I realized that this uh, cultural narrative that was in my mind, it was kind of like when uh, a powerful country goes and colonizes some uh, less powerful people, and they tell those people, you know, everything you always thought, your true nature, it's all wrong. This is the language. This is what you have to do. We're gonna, you know, they get colonized. They get really abused their whole identity gets sort of destroyed and they get this false identity plastered on top of them. And so I, I realized that I had been colonized. You know, I, I was born with a mind that was pure and sky-like and bright and aware and infinite and eternal and free. And yet from the moment I was born, all these clouds had been just forced <laughs> in a sense. I'd been compelled to look at through all these different lenses and, and narrow down. It's like all these clouds had come in all this, all these chemtrails and pollution and smog and who knows what, you know, and the sky was like, you couldn't even see there was a blue sky there anymore. <clears throat> and um, so that's what I realized that, that, but behind all that and that, but the clouds never damaged the sky. Really the sky is untouchable by the clouds. They, they from the, from down below, it looks like it's pretty bad, but actually from the point of view of the sky, it can never be touched. And so that was the, the great joy that I discovered was that no matter what I've gone through or whatever it is, it, the, the true nature has never damaged. 
and uh, is always free and, and, and is radiating joy and, and peace and, and, uh, and happiness and is here to learn and to grow and to contribute and to be creative uh, for the short time that we have on this earth, expressing through a physical body. The physical body is not what I am. The body, the mind, the collection of experiences, the memories, none of that is what I am. Uh, you know, you got to go way beyond all that. But, but there's a purpose for this. And so anyway, so when I came back to the, to the United States eventually, and got, I ended up getting a, my master's degree and PhD and all this other stuff, and teaching college, and then eventually, uh, I left teaching college. I loved teaching college. I was teaching philosophy and humanities, mythology, comparative religion, creativity, all these great things. It was really fun uh, in San Francisco uh, at a few different colleges. Uh, but I, I really felt drawn to, the, to music. I, I, played, I had played the piano, and uh, so I decided to make my living as a traveling piano player, you know, just playing concerts. And as I got into that and was going to a lot of progressive churches, like Unitarian churches and Unity churches, as well as a lot of conferences and uh, all kinds of things, uh, and playing this, this music, I, I, was, I was able to kind of get out of the way and just, people call it channeling, you know, this music would come through me, I wouldn't think, it would just sort of come through, and then people would say that they were getting healed by this music, and physically or psychologically healed. So this music was, was very beautiful and very inspiring and uplifting. And I, play, I went and played in Russia and Europe and uh, Germany and, and all over South America. I went all over the place playing this music. And um, it was great. You know, made some albums and was making my living as a musician. I didn't think I could ever do that. I was always told musicians will never make a living. You can't do it. But I was doing it. And I was living in a Volkswagen bus. I had an old 1971 <laughs> Volkswagen bus. So I was traveling around playing the piano. It was a great life. I mean, I have to say, it was really fun. And I just loved playing this healing music and, and uh, doing concerts and so forth and selling these two cassettes back in the days of cassettes. You had these cassettes out and that was supporting, you know, that was doing it. But, um, but the whole thing about our abuse of animals gets stronger and stronger. And um, eventually when I was in Europe giving concerts, I met my future wife, Madeline. And that was really interesting because... Um, you know, I was playing in this little Waldorf school one evening, just a little, just for a few people, just sort of by chance. There was an art gallery opening, and this Swiss woman came over, and I didn't realize it at the time, but from the time she was a little girl, she had heard this music in her mind, a melody, and she had always looked for it. She could never find it, and she had even married a guy, and they had owned a music store in Basel, Switzerland. And so she knew all the music, you know, and she sold music. She had a whole, her whole life was albums, you know, and they, that's what they did. But she could never find that melody, that music that she kept haunting her. She kept looking for it and trying to find it. And then she said, when I went over to the piano and I started playing, that was the music that she had looked for her whole life. And so she came over and she said, do you have any albums <laughs> in German? I didn't speak German, but anyway, we, somehow we communicated. And I gave her a copy of this one CD that I had. Anyway, I came back to the United States. I wasn't thinking about it anymore, but she started writing to me and she started trying to promote my music all over Switzerland. And eventually she came over. She's an artist. She came over. She said, well, yeah, I, I said, I want to make a CD. And because she was saying, you can't, you know, you can't sell cassettes anymore. You know, I can't sell those. And we need to, you need, you need to make a CD. And so it was the, when CDs were starting to first be made by people. 
So I said, well, I need an artist. And she said, I, well, I'm an artist, you know. And so she came over. She flew over from Switzerland and to make the uh, album art for my first CD. And, and to make a long story short, we fell in love and got married. And so we've been together. Now we're having a 25th wedding anniversary, you know, next month. <laughs> but, um, but I, yeah, yeah, thanks. But, um, but anyway, we started uh, creating music and art together, you know. And, uh, but I kept telling her, you know, the music is, you know, she, she was totally into the music, you know, the music, music, music that, you know, it's healing, it's going to transform the world, it's going to create peace on earth. And I kept saying, yeah, the music is great, you know, but there's, there's this massive abuse of animals. We're killing, you know, 75 million animals every day for food. Nobody wants to talk about it. We just want to, we think we can keep imprisoning all these animals and abusing them so horribly and eating them and somehow have peace on earth. You know, it's like, like How's that going to happen? <laughs> it's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. So I did more and more research into it. And, and, I, and as I learned more and more and more about animal agriculture, and, and since I was a generalist, you know, I got my PhD in educating intuition, but that was because I, I couldn't narrow myself down. I hate narrowing myself down. I always try to make connections between everything. So I was teaching and studying mythology and music and literature and history and sociology and anthropology and social psychology and you know anything it's all related it's all connected you know i can just see everything connected and so um i started thinking you know someone's going to write a book that will show how everything is connected to what's on our plate the history and anthropology and sociology and psychology and spiritual dimension and health and environmental and you know it's all connected on our to our food and our food rituals and the food system and what we do to animals it's not just a little thing it's it's the core of our entire society actually and it's hidden and we're not supposed to talk about it it's a big cover-up it's the biggest cover-up there is it's the biggest cultural shadow no one you can talk about anything and I would I found this out on Sunday morning they asked me to always give the talk on Sunday morning and they would, after a while, I, I would try to talk about this. And they would say, well, you can come here and talk on Sunday morning, but don't say anything about vegetarianism and don't talk about animals. You can talk about spirituality. You can talk about peace, talk about love, talk about healing, talk about abundance, talk about harmony. But don't talk about animals. Don't talk about that. Don't we don't want to hear about that. We didn't come here to hear about that. <laughs> we came here to feel good. We don't want to feel guilty. You know, leave us alone. <laughs> so it was kind of like, oh. Nobody wants to hear this, but this is what I got to talk about because I just felt, you know, these, I had seen it, you know, I, I was, I was, I went through it like everybody did. I remember, you know, I was raised in this typical family eating a lot of meat and dairy. And when I was about seven, I asked my mother, you know, the kind of food we're eating, is this what everybody eats? And she said, yeah, this is what everybody eats. And then um, she came back later and she said, well, that's not true. There are vegetarians. And I'd never heard that word in my life. And, and I was at that age when I liked learning new, especially big words like vegetarian. So I said, what's a vegetarian? And she said, don't worry, you're never going to meet one. <laughs> and my mother was right. She said, so I'm a lot older than you are. I never met one. I don't know where they get their protein. You know? So I had this image of vegetarians being these protein deficient, poor people. Like, you, know, you just do not want to be a vegetarian. That was the last thing you want to be. And uh, so I was wounded that way. I mean, I ate a lot of meat and dairy and I had the usual, you know, I had an appendicitis and runny noses and sore throats and my poor brother with his earaches and, you know, all this. We kind of go through all that acne and all these things from, from meat and especially from dairy. But, um, but I didn't realize that. And so when I, start, when I moved to a plant-based way of eating, first of all, my 
health was it was always, I was always relatively healthy, but it just got even better. I mean, I got really I was like never sick, you know. It was like this great thing, and and uh, so I was I, I was very I felt so healthy, but I also felt this kind of heaviness falling off of my shoulders of of eating animal foods and uh, and especially dairy products, and so. Um, I, I really I realized that it's good for the for the mind, and I felt this um, this clarity in, in my mind. You know, the, there's a kind of I think you know it's well known that dairy products really cause a lot of uh, of mucus buildup, a lot of congestion in our body, and um, I think it also causes somehow men, mental congestion just because we always we can't really look at it. You know, it's like I'm not going to look at that. I sort of avoid. And the world piece I talk about how we we make a continuous effort. I was making continuous effort not to think about it. It's kind of like holding a ball a ball underwater. You know, the ball wants to come up. We have to keep holding it down, and it wants to come up. You know, and that's kind of what it is. I think with eating animal foods, it's like the violence and uh, and disharmony and abuse that we inflict on these animals, plus the fact that they're not healthy. We always have to kind of hold that down. And we, we have this kind of big con- sort of conspiracy of silence that we just all agree we won't talk about it. And we have this certain, and we have a narrative, that narrative, you know, that, that these stories that, that we need to eat animals to get enough protein, we need to eat dairy to get enough calcium, that we are superior, they are inferior. God gave us these animals to eat. If we don't eat them, they'll take over the world, you know, <laughs> or whatever. You know, plants have feelings too, so you got to eat something. So you might as well eat an animal. It tastes better, you know. There's all these, these, you know. There's, there's only about you know seven or eight, you know, primary, you know, aspects to this narrative, but it goes on. It's kind of injected into us along with the food, right? This is the reason why. So I realized the the toxic. I had already realized the toxic nature of a narrative. You know how a narrative can really harm us and really kind of put us into a channel that's not in our best interests and, and keep us just in misery, you know, just trying to please other people and uh, do work we don't like to do and, and make us unhealthy in so many levels. So I, I saw this is, a, this is a toxic narrative. So I started to just do more and more research and see all these connections. And so I told Madeline, you know, someone is going to write a book. I can't wait to read it. You know, a book that'll give the big picture of the consequences of animal agriculture. And I can't wait to read that book. It'll be fun to read it. I'm sure someone's going to write that book. And a few years went by and no one wrote the book. And then finally, Madeline said, well, well, I think if you want to read that book, you'll probably have to write it yourself, <laughs> which I didn't want to hear. But she was, she was kind of getting used to the fact that's all I ever talked about. I didn't talk about music. I kept talking about animals and, you know, veganism and all that stuff. And so I, really didn't want to, I knew it was going to be a lot of work and it was, I spent the next five years of my life just writing that book and I'd already done a lot of research. <clears throat> so it came out, actually it came out in 2005. We just had the uh, 10th anniversary edition and it's been translated into now 16 languages and we got quite a few more on the way. So it's really become a worldwide, it was a number one Amazon bestseller and it's become really quite a, a worldwide movement now uh, on looking at world peace, essentially, and um, human uh, injustice from a bigger picture of n- absolute um, inevitabilities of animal agriculture. If, you, if we want to eat a hamburger or cheeseburger or fish sticks or whatever, we will have racism and sexism and ableism and war and classism and conflict and disease and environmental devastation 
to the suicide of humanity and the destruction of all life on this planet. There's no way around it. Animal agriculture will destroy us and everything. I mean, I, I now see what animal agriculture actually is. And I realize it, it's sort of portrayed, like it was portrayed to me as my friend. You know, this is, this is your good friend, the hot dog. This is your good friend, the hamburger. This is your good friend, the cheese. Delicious, yum, yum, yum. This is your good friend, bacon. Yum, yum, yum. You know, it's your good friend, fish. Good friend, you know, these are your good friends. And it's like the Trojan horse, you know. It was portrayed as a good friend. Here's this beautiful horse. Come on in. Bring it in within the city gates. This wonderful horse. Well, that horse it only had one purpose, which was to destroy those people. And animal agriculture only has one purpose. It destroys everything. If you, I mean, if I was born as a pig or a chicken or a cow, and if we were all born that way, I would not have to explain this to you. You would know how violent and abusive and hor horrible animal agriculture is. But since we're born as the superior ones, you know, where we just pay, we take out our wallets and we pay for this system, and then we don't just pay for it and cause it, then we turn around and we actually eat it. So we, it becomes the cells of this body, this misery and violence. We don't realize how damaging it really is. And it is beyond what we can imagine how damaging it is. And we lived actually, Madeline and I, after spending three years in Northern California creating a lot of uh, albums. Those were our babies. We created a lot of CDs of music. <laughs> uh, we went on the road and we we got an RV, you know, fifth wheel trailer. And we lived on the road for 17 years. We had no house and we just traveled all over North America. And um, so we've seen we've seen every state, you know, from every angle. We spent months in every state. We've we've really been around a lot and a lot in Canada too. And um, so we, so I've seen the ugliness of animal agriculture. We've gone to stockyards and slaughterhouses and factory farms, and we've seen the just literally millions upon millions upon millions of acres of land that have been enslaved to monocropping, which is just where you cut down everything. You destroy the forest, you destroy the native prairie grasses, and you just grow genetically engineered corn or soy or alfalfa. Not for people. People think that's for them. It's not. It's for these animals. You don't see the animals used. Maybe you see a few cows, but most of the animals are stuck away in these thinking sheds where they never see the light of day, but they're eating an enormous quantity of food. It takes an enormous quantity of water and petroleum, uh, climate destabilizing gases. They convert all this food that could feed hungry people, but doesn't, uh, into saturated fat, cholesterol, acidifying and inflammatory animal protein, and enormous quantities of, of sewage as well as nitrous oxide and methane, which all of which are just destroying our planet. There's nothing more environmentally devastating than animal agriculture. So I've seen all that in the ugliness, the absolute ugliness of animal agriculture. What it does to animals is ugly. What it does to the earth is ugly. What it does to our physical bodies is ugly. And so uh, the, and the, uh, and the good news is that when we move to a plant-based way of eating, we just radically reduce our environmental footprint, you know, and it just feels good to do that. You know, I, I mean, the National Academy of Sciences has said it's between 12 and 15 times as much land to feed someone eating a standard uh, Western diet as someone eating a, an organic plant-based diet. Right? I mean, 12 to 15 times, that's not like just twice as much or three times as much. We're talking like 12 times as much. It takes 12 times as much because we had to grow all that, that feed to feed these animals. It's really wasteful. These mountains of manure, you don't know what to do with them. Mountains of 
just huge pools of, of urine and all this stuff. So the, the good news is that we, as, we under, as we wake up out of this cultural trance of eating animal foods and realize that we can thrive and be healthy on a plant-based way of eating, it will unleash the greatest spiritual, psychological, environmental, cultural awakening humanity has ever experienced. Because the herding revolution that happened 10,000 years ago, when for the first time we started owning animals as property for food, that was a revolution. See, people don't realize it. You know, people, were, I wasn't taught this. It took me 20 years to figure this out, studying. You know, no one had written a book like the World Peace Diet that lays the whole thing out. But I realized, I figured out, you know, kind of what happened, and could connect it with the with the psychological and spiritual dimension. So that we're born in, we live in a herding culture. See, that's the thing. We don't realize that. We think we live in a kind of modern, high-tech, computerized, urban, whatever, society, and that's not true. I mean, that, that's true, but the core is herding animals. It's still a herding society. It's just instead of actually each one of us going out and herding animals ourselves, now it's done by machines. It's industrialized. There's only a few people that actually do this. Less than 1% of the people are actually farmers, you know, actually doing the work. And uh, it's all done by gigantic machines. But it's the main thing we're doing. By far, most of the land, most of the water, most of the petroleum, most of the energy, most everything is for animal agriculture. And what's the main thing in any society? Anthropologists understand this. The primary way that any society transmits its values from generation to generation is through the meals. The rituals that is through rituals, you know, and the main ritual in any society are meals. When we get together and we sit around the table, we're not just eating food, we're eating a whole set of attitudes. This is where the culture teaches us through our meals about our relationship with each other, with animals, with the earth, with God, the cosmos, with everything. It's through the meals. So when we're eating meals of meat and dairy products and eggs, we got to realize we're eating a whole set of attitudes along with the food. The food itself is toxic. I mean, it's well understood now. You're eating, if you're eating a lot of meat and dairy, you know, your, your body's getting clogged up, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, strokes, osteoporosis, uh, obesity, liver disease, kidney disease, autoimmune diseases, you know, dementia. And these are all linked to the diets with animal foods because they're, we're not really designed to eat them. So we're eating these toxic foods that are hard on our body. But what I discovered is much worse <laughs> In a way, we're eating these attitudes, these toxic attitudes that guarantee we're going to have war, that guarantee we're going to have human slavery, which we still have. We have more human slavery today than in the 1850s. So uh, the conflict, we can have a world. The, the good news is there's nothing stopping us from living in harmony on this beautiful earth. This earth is not only beautiful, as you know. I know, Matt, you know how beautiful this earth is. You've traveled You've celebrated the snow, the islands, the water, the sky, the trees. You know, you've you have felt your your oneness with this beautiful earth and the magnificence of this creation, and felt the preciousness of this life that we have. You know, and the and the wondrousness of this adventure that we have. This earth is so beautiful. I mean, the more we ex I explore, I've, I've been able, since the World Peace Diet's been translated into so many languages, we've been able to go all over, you know, Australia, New Zealand, all over Asia, Singapore, China, Taiwan, Korea, Vietnam, and then go on on India, Africa, the Middle East, all over Europe, and North and South America. And 
it's just spectacularly beautiful, this earth, but it's, the earth is also abundant. There's an incredible givingness of life here. And this natural abundance easily would let all seven and a half billion of us eat all we need to eat on a fraction of the land. We could allow the rainforest to come back. Right now we're cutting down an acre per second of rainforest. I mean, this is cutting down the lungs of the earth. Why are we doing that? To grow soybeans, to feed to imprisoned pigs, cows, and chickens, and fishes, to, to, to sell to people in Europe and China and the United States and Canada and all over the world. So this attack, this, this insane attack on oceans, on rainforests, on climate stability, on uh, aquifers that take literally millions of years to recharge, we're depleting them to irrigate these crops. We're not gonna have an earth for our children if we keep eating meat and dairy. We will not have an earth probably, but by the year 2045, they say, oceanographers say, and then they keep moving the, the date closer, there won't be any fish left at all in the oceans. We're, we're, the mass extinction of species, according to research by um, a World Wildlife Fund, by the year 2026, this is amazing, all wild mammals will be extinct if we continue at the pace we're going right now. So these are really shocking statistics, but it's true. I can see it. We were in Africa. I mean, already elephants, lions, giraffes, these animals, which have been around for you know millions of years, now we're seeing them moving right into extinction because of why? Because we saw it, because Kentucky Fried Chicken, Burger King, McDonald's are moving into Africa. And so now instead of just eat, people just eating foods locally that they grow themselves, uh, people are um, now growing these more and more you know, monocropping of, of um, crops. And uh, now elephants are seen as enemies. And you know, we got to get rid of these enemies. We got rid of the elephants. They're, they're trampling our our corn, you know, kill them off, kill off the lions, kill off the zebras, kill off the giraffes. They're pests. They're just pests. Get rid of them. That's what we do here. And, and you know, prairie dogs and coyotes, we have the, the uh, it's called in the United States, the um, wildlife services. It sounds good. <laughs> wildlife services um, department. And they kill millions of beautiful animals because ranchers and farmers don't like coyotes and wolves and bears and bobcats and and prairie dogs and skunks and opossums and, and uh, trumpeter swans and cormorants, you know, all these animals that are trying to live, we're attacking them. And that's what animal agriculture has done from the very beginning. It's been a war against nature and against wild animals and, uh, and also against women, actually. That's a whole other thing. But the point is we're eating foods that inject into us without our permission from the time we're little infants. You know, we're, we come here with this little infants, you know, and we, we just eat whatever you know, they give us to eat. So we're eating these attitudes. And that's the thing I discovered. So uh, that's the basic idea. We're living in a hurting society. And uh, I think once we understand that, then we begin to see uh, why we have the problems we have and why we're not gonna be able to solve them until we go to a tr uh, beyond being a herding culture, until we stop imprisoning animals, steal, pulling them violently out of their habitats and killing them for food because there's no nutrients that we need to be healthy. Uh, we can get all, our, all the nutrients we need to be healthy from a plant-based way of eating. So that is kind of gets you to where uh, I am today, which is basically just to bring this message um, to the world and, and, and not in any kind of judgmental or blaming way. Nobody's, nobody 
is eating animal foods because they want to cause suffering to animals or want to destroy the earth. We're just following orders. I did. I ate meat. I was just the orders were injected into me without my permission by very loving, well-meaning people. My mother, my father, my doctor, my teachers, my the minister at the church. You know, everybody. They just say, this is what we eat. We all eat together. We this is our food. And so we're, I realized that we humans are tribal. You know, we want to eat like everybody else. We don't want to be different. And food is our most intimate way that we connect with each other. So this is the thing. So now it's time for us to evolve beyond this um, way, of, this absolute way of eating. And it's the big challenge for us. And I think there's no greater gift we can give to the world than to make an effort to understand the consequences of animal agriculture and understand our, our, our true nature and uh, to bring our lives into alignment with our true nature, even if it means going, uh, you know, being different than everybody else. And that, that's part of what we have to do. But, but the good news is that it's a growing movement, and I can talk a lot more about it, but I'm, I'm going to stop here just because I've been rattling on for quite a while. <laughs> Thank you for listening. <laughs> oh, my goodness, man. That was <laughs> Uh, informative, uh, amazing, uh, mind-blowing, disturbing, because some of the facts in there aren't great. Um, yeah. But that was one of the most epic beginnings ever. You're up there. here, got to be top three, man. That was <laughs> wonderful. Um, and I knew it was going to come because of your work. You know, you, you just gloss over the PhD part and going around philosophy. Your book takes five years, and you're still bringing that message, which is extremely important. Um, I like that you're talking about the cultural narrative because I just had Thomas Hubel last episode and he talked about collective trauma, same idea, where we're not understanding usually where these beliefs, habits, values are coming from or the impact they're having because it's just the way it is. And so we're in this way, we're in this idea and understanding. And right. so if we can start there and understand what we're doing, we can then create choice within ourselves and, and then more of a conscious impact on how we're cr making an impact in our own lives, in our community and in the, in the world and change those narratives if we so wish to. Yeah, that's it. It's uh, exactly that becoming conscious of the narrative. There's a narrative out there. We, we read it in the media, the mass media. I know they, the narrative in the mass media is very well uh, controlled. It's, it's um, I wouldn't trust it at all. But the thing is that narrative, there's another, the part that narrative gets into us, it, it becomes our own voice. You know, it, it becomes our own, we think that, we think these things, it must be true. <laughs> and um, becoming more conscious and questioning the narrative, that's the key. And I think when I wrote the World Peace Diet, I wrote the World Peace Diet, not just, a, the, the beautiful thing about, uh, I use the word vegan, right? Veganism is that it's not merely a critique of a system that's violent and abusive and unhealthy and destroying the earth. There's this wonderful solution, right? We, have, we, have, we offer some, another way of living and eating. And, and one of the things I want to emphasize, too, is that veganism is just a word. And it's, it shouldn't be used to, uh, in any way, um, divide us up or anything like that. It, there's a word in Sanskrit, an ancient word, that's really the core of a lot of the spiritual teachings of the world. Ahimsa is the word ahimsa. It means non-violence or non-harmfulness. That's, in a way, a better word than vegan, I think. I mean, it's a more universal word. Another word is love <laughs> or kindness or respect or, uh, or a caring. I think caring is really a better word. Uh, or um, mercy uh, or compassion. Uh, you know, these are words that are perhaps uh, more accurate. These are Japanese words, shojin. 
uh, which is a Buddhist word. It means to, to eat a plant-based diet for ethical reasons. You know, that's a, it's a sort of a practice. But uh, as I point out in the World Peace Diet, um, we shouldn't get too hung up on the words, but the idea is to see what the words are pointing at. And so when I say vegan, I just mean basically living, like Donald Watson who coined the word vegan, he said it's a, a, a philosophy and way of living that just seeks to reduce the amount of suffering we're causing to other beings, just to minimize the amount of suffering we're causing. So that's, that's most people agree with that, right? I mean, <laughs> we don't go out of our way to cause, make people suffer, right? I mean, the idea is not is to try to help each other or to try to be a force for uh, healing or kindness or generosity or something. And we know in our bones, and this is one of the things, you know, I, I used to teach college courses in comparative religion, that all the world religious traditions, the wisdom traditions of the world agree in what we, the, the word is karma, I guess, you know, that what we sow, we're going to reap. And that if we want to have happiness ourselves, the best way to have happiness and freedom for ourselves is to try to help others be happy and be free. That what, if we plant seeds of kindness and caring in our relationships with each other, and sooner or later it comes back and we're happy. And we, and we see it in our own lives that if, if we're angry and miserable and, and abusive to others, usually man, we, we find the same thing coming back to us. When we're kind and loving and generous and caring, our life gets filled with beautiful, wonderful people, and more and more. I mean, this is the basic wisdom. And so the idea is to connect with our core of wisdom within ourselves, which means we have to question the cultural programming, especially in regards to animals, because animals are the, are the ones who are in our hands, but they don't have power uh, to fight back, right? They're, they're really vulnerable. And uh, so when we look at uh, a chicken, for example, if, I was, if I'm born as a chicken and someone abuses me, I can't take him to court. I can't say, hey, well, look, you know, he abused me. You know, people that do that, get, they get paid to do that, right? I mean, they get a rewarded to do that. They get a powerful voice in Congress if they do it a lot, right? So this is the situation. It's, it's upside down. You know, the, the more we abuse, the more money and the more respect we get in, in, the, in the society. So this is the key. So we're born in a hurting culture. And one thing I want to just maybe um, just briefly mention, just for everyone who's listening, if you haven't read The World Peace Diet, there's a chapter in there that just goes briefly into the history. And I just want to say this quickly. Because we, most people, when they hear these ideas, think, well, but this has been going on for a long time. It's kind of human nature. You know, this is how humans are. This is how we've always been. And that's not true. This is a new development. I mean, herding animals has only been going on at the most 10,000 years. Owning I mean, herding means owning them as property for food. Like, like, it's like canned hunting, you know, hyper-confining them, and now you just shoot them, right? Or just cut their throats, whatever. So it started with wild sheep, and then wild goats, and then later wild cows in what is today Iraq. And about five or six things happened when we, you know, very gradually, over hundreds of years, gradually. This was a revolution. This was the last revolution in our society. That's why we need another revolution, which I call the vegan revolution or the... Or the uh, the world peace revolution. And that is um, the herding revolution basically, first of all, reduced animals. That was number one. Animals, instead of, now, instead of being respected like they really naturally are by us, because animals are amazing. They do things we can't do all the time. Amazing things. You just watch a squirrel running from tree to tree. You know? <laughs> I mean, just watch the, the, how amazingly well adapted they are and the intelligence that they have that they, for their particular niche. I mean, it's, it's astonishing. So 
instead of being respected, though, once we own them as property, like cows and pigs and chickens, gradually they became despised. And we know that with human slavery, once you own a being, pretty soon you have to hate them. You have to, because you're going to abuse them, because you're going to mistreat them. So animals were reduced, number one. And not just the owned animals, but all the animals, because the other animals are now pests, right? Or they might interfere with our property. So this ownership, this, again, this took thousands of years. It was a slow revolution, but gradually animals are reduced. Gradually, the second thing after reducing animals was a wealthy elite class emerges. For the first time on planet Earth, this wealthy elite class, they're rich, they're powerful, they control everything. I used to teach college courses in these ancient texts, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the ancient Old Testament, right, the ancient Greek tragedies. Just, there's always these kings, right, the kings. Who are these kings? Those are the rich herders. They own, why are they rich? Why are they powerful? Only one reason, they own livestock. Livestock or wealth. The word capital, we get capitalism, means capita, capita means head. The more head of sheep and goats and cows, the richer you are. So this wealthy elite class emerges. They're controlling everything. They control the narrative. They control the society. And they create two institutions that have never been on earth before. Number one is war. There had never been war. You want to know why there's war? Because of herding animals. That's the reason. The very first word for war is the ancient, that we know of, the oldest word is the ancient Sanskrit word. It goes way back. It, it's gavya. It comes from the word cow. It means the desire for more cows. <laughs> That's the first word for war because these rich kings, they would say, God, I want to get richer. I want to have more wealth. Well, wealth meant more livestock. So they would go attack a guy who has a lot of livestock and try to t steal his, <laughs> his livestock. They wouldn't give up without a fight. So for the first time, we had these large-scale mass battles, conflicts, wars. And whoever lost the war, not only did the animals become the property of the victors, but the people became the property of the victors. So now humans have invented slavery. Now we own not just animals, we own people. And what I realized in my research on the World Peace Diet is that everything we've done to animals, sooner or later we did to each other. So it's a small step from owning animals to owning people. So the animals and the people became the property of the victors. We have the slavery of human beings. We have war. And then two more things. One was women. Women also were highly respected. They did something that men can never do. They brought forth new life and nurtured that life. This is a sacred thing. And yet with animal agriculture, what's animal agriculture? Animal agriculture is two things. Most people think it's only one thing. One thing is it's imprisoning and killing animals for food. That's one, but that's only half the story. The other story, you could not have animal agriculture without the other half, which is you impregnate them against their will and you steal their babies. And you do it as fast as you possibly can because the more pregnancies, the more babies, the more babies, the more money, the more wealth, the more milk, the more meat. So it's a rape and kill operation as fast as possible. And so women gradually, instead of being seen as mysterious and powerful beings who are like us, who, can, who do things we can't do, they began to be seen as the female animals, as mere breeders. They're just here to give me something. So by the time the historic period emerged, we have the very first writings that I was talking about earlier, which is only like a few thousand years ago, this herding culture is well-established and women are bought and sold like cows and sheep. They're just property. They're just breeders. They're here to give me sons. And this patriarchal society based on oppressing women and animals and owning land 
and uh, with a wealthy elite dominating and getting rich from war, this patriarchal, violent, warlike society spreads out of the Eastern Mediterranean into the Northern Mediterranean, into Central Asia, into Europe. When they, come, when they move out of Europe, go to Africa, go to North and South America, they don't just go by themselves. They bring their whole herding thing. And the, what the Indians call the slave animals come with them. And this whole mentality of dominating nature and eating meat and dairy products from imprisoned animals. And that, that system is, is that is the system that we are born into. So as little infants, we're born into a system and we're forced, we're compelled without our permission to, in, to receive and to have within our own narrative all of the stories, the whole narrative that justifies imprisoning animals, the mentality of, of domination, of exploitation, of privilege, of elitism, of entitlement. Well, how can we ever have an end to racism or sexism while we're eating animals? It's impossible because the fundamental mentality is we're superior, they're inferior. We're, we're, we're worth something, they're not worth anything. And we're eating that. I mean, it goes into the very cells of our body. So the whole idea of creating a stratified society if some dominate and some are dominated with is an in-group and an out-group, you know, that is, we eat that with every meal. We have to understand that. We're not just eat, we're, we're eating cows. We're not just eating birds. We're eating beings. We're enslaving beings. We're justifying what you cannot be justified. You, if some guy said, well, you know, well, you raped uh, someone, they say, well, you know, tasted good. You know, you know it, it felt good. That would not be a justification. You can talk to somebody about eating meat and they say, well, it tastes good. Like that's a justification. You know, like it tastes good. Like that, that's a reason. It's not a reason. If somebody, if I steal someone's watch and, and, they, and I say, well, because I liked it, you know, it's just like, that's too bad. You go to jail. <laughs> but if it's, a, if it's a cow and I steal her baby, it's because, well, I wanted to. Oh, okay. You know, so this rampant injustice that we're causing and eating, and it's completely indefensible. It's unnecessary. I mean, I've been a vegan now for 40 years, nearly 40 years. At the last time I went to a doctor for, you know, for some kind of health issues, you know, it was, it was like back in the early 70s, you know. And so, so, um, so, you know, to be, I mean, people who are eating a plant-based diet, I just read yesterday the British, diet, what is it, the British um, um, Dietitians Association just came out with an official statement uh, that, that a, plant a whole food plant-based diet is the best diet to be healthy. You know, so this is an official kind, of, even the officials, and it's, it's hard to get them to say anything because they, that means they have to question the whole herding culture. But it's becoming so obvious that, that a plant-based way of eating is much healthier, right? So there's no nutrients that we have to imprison these and kill these animals for to get. There aren't any, right? So, so why are we doing it? You know, why, what is it? This inertia is so powerful. But the thing we have to understand is that we have all of us within us. I refer to this in the World Peace Diet as Sophia. This uh, Sophia is the ancient Greek goddess of wisdom, this, this inner feminine capacity to be receptive and to love and nurture life. And that is the thing. I think Sophia is that the, like when a mother gives birth to a baby and just loves and protects that little baby, that's the foundation of a healthy baby. You know, if we don't get that from our mothers, we are not going to be physically or psychologically healthy and our society will be very just ruined if nobody gets that, right? We'll have a very violent society if mothers don't care about their babies. But what do we do in animal agriculture? It's, it's that. We, we always steal the baby from the mother. We always break the bond between the mother and, the, and her child, her mother and her offspring. We break that bond. It causes enormous suffering. Madeline and I would camp near dairies, even uh, like small-scale dairies, and we would hear 
dairy cows moaning and bellowing and wailing all night because their babies have been stolen from them and killed. And then they steal the milk and they steal the baby and they steal the milk and they steal the baby, they kill the baby and then they kill the mother. You know, so that's what it is. It's the most hideous sexual abuse of female animals on a massive scale. Millions of times every day we're doing this. And we're not just doing it, then we drink the milk, right? We feed it to our children and we eat the cheese, which is concentrated milk. You know, so we're causing sexual violence and sexual perversion. You know, all these male cows that have to be masturbated to get their sperm to go in the sperm gun that's put in the vagina of these cows and pigs and chickens, they're all raped on what the industry calls rape racks. The babies are always stolen. This, we, have to have, we have workers that have to do this all day. These workers that work in these uh, places, like these factory farms and slaughterhouses, have the highest rates of injury, the highest rates of suicide, drug addiction, alcoholism, spousal abuse. They have what is referred to as perpetrator-induced traumatic stress disorder. They have massive, it's traumatic for the animals, but it's traumatic for the people who have to rape animals all day or slit their throats or electroshock them or kick them or beat them. But if I take out my wallet and pay for meat, dairy products, or eggs in a restaurant or in a store, I'm paying people to do work that brings out the worst in them. I'm paying for webs of trauma that radiate into our entire society to hungry people, to slaughterhouse workers, to future generations, to ecosystems, to wildlife. There's nothing but trauma in animal agriculture. And then I eat the food and it actually traumatizes my body. <laughs> really. I mean, it's, not, it's, it's difficult to deal with saturated fat and cholesterol and this stuff. We're not designed for it. So, uh, so we have to realize that all of us have been programmed by this thing that started way back 10,000 years ago. And for whatever reason, people 10,000 years ago thought they had to do that. You know, I have no argument with them. If they thought they had to do that back then, they had to eat these animals in Iraq 10,000 years ago, fine. But why are we doing it today? <laughs> it makes no sense. I mean, we, it takes so much land and water and petroleum and makes so much disease, causes war. But the interesting thing is, the biggest industries that make the most money are what? The pharmaceutical industry, the medical industry, the war industry. They profit from this whole thing. The media, the banks in the background that make all the loans to this, they profit from all this. They make a lot of money. So this is what we have to understand, that this is not in the best interest of the 99% of us who are buying and eating animal foods. So if we really want to have an effective movement of awakening, uh, where we take back our lives and take back our health and take back everything, our economies and freedom and so forth, we've got to give freedom to the animals. We will be enslaved and imprisoned as long as we are enslaved and imprisoned them. And we are. And many people don't realize it. Perfect slaves think they're free. We have to understand we have to free these. We, we are called to free these animals. And the thing is, if we don't, when you have seven and a half billion people trying to eat meat and dairy and the, and the the impact on the environment, we will not have a world for our children. The, this is spiraling out of control already. With nuclear weapons, with machines that can cut down rainforests so fast, you know, the oceans are being strip mined of fish, the ecosystems are being, and the climate are being really damaged by animal agriculture now. They're, they're, we, we're, this is it. I mean, the next few years, it's so critical that each one of us not only understand this and bring our lives into alignment with this understanding, but share these ideas with each other so that we can like, you know, create the momentum it's building for a positive shift. And I think it's definitely going to happen. It, it, it has to happen. And there's no greater gift I think we can give to the world and no better way to spend our lifetime, this precious life that we have as a human being 
than to make an effort to understand these ideas and to share these ideas and to live these ideas because these ideas are love and caring and kindness, not just abstract, but an actual action. And how do you live your, how are we living our life? What are we eating? If someone says, oh, I'm a kind and loving person, I care, I'm really spiritually evolved, and they're eating animal foods, no way, forget it. I mean, if, you're, if I'm eating, I mean, if I'm eating animal foods, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a dead giveaway <laughs> that there's a disconnect because there's, there's, that's violence and it's unnecessary. So it's completely contrary to, to everything that, that spirituality actually stands for, which is the, the sharing and caring and kindness and celebrating the adventure of beauty that this world is and this, this earth is and that our lives can be. That's extraordinary, man. I could listen to you talk all day. Um, I don't know which way I want to go. I've been taking notes the whole time. I guess uh, what I would want to ask is like, what do you provide for a solution, right? Because I think a lot of people, you know, when you get the history of why something is the way it is, and then you're starting to understand or awaken or remove the veil of like, oh, this is why, you know, if you look on TV, it's only eat meat and drink beer and look at boobs, you know what I mean? Boobs sells both. And, um, you know, and that's also the uh, demoralization of women right there, you know what I mean? So we have all kinds of problems here. And so I'll just give it back to you to go wherever you want. I was thinking about maybe some horrific stats you could share with people um, <laughs> because I know that you have them or moving towards solutions. You're, you're listening to this, you know, you're probably, you might be the only one in your community. Veganism is still pretty, it, it's growing, but it's still, you're still the weird one. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so maybe some help for someone hearing and even, uh, moving towards it, like a friend of mine does uh, Meatless Mondays. And I was like, you know what? That's a start. Meatless Mondays is a start. It's better than right. seven days. And I'm like, even if we could eat it, like if, if people, I had this idea for like a little short skit of like a little farm town and, and they go to the diner and um, you eat the hamburger, right? But then all of a sudden the next week they have all you can eat bacon cheeseburgers and so then you see the community come in eating so much bacon cheeseburgers then you see the effect it has on the farm then you see how the farmer has to scale out then you see how it goes and then you see the people getting sick and they're all fat and just basically the idea of impact we're not taking what we need we're taking whatever we want without understanding where it comes from what we're doing if we need it why yeah. we're doing it and so that's so i'll just say all that but give it back to you and maybe help somebody like they're like i don't know what to eat when i was right for a while i didn't know what the hell to eat at first uh, but there's a lot of resources so yeah great okay thanks matt yeah all right guys i hope that you enjoyed that part one with dr will tuttle he's amazing if you like that podcast please share it with your friends uh, leave a review on itunes uh, become a patron support the show uh if you just go to patreon.com forward slash matt belair most importantly do one act of kindness today if this podcast inspires you and um, it helps you in any way please spread that vibe by sharing uh, an act of kindness with somebody in the real world in your community. That's really what it's all about. Um, if you want to go a step further and leave a review, they really help um, share the podcast. That really helps too. And also Patreon. If you guys want to do some coaching or you want me to come speak 
Um, you know, I do work with people. It's funny because one of the clients are like, you know, I, I was hesitant to reach out because you're so, um, um, I guess deep is the way she, she put it in a different way. But, um, you know, I, I work with basically what I would say the average person, which is me. It's, you know, it's your single moms. It's the people and families. It's just people who want to just get more clear on, on what they want out of life. And, you know, that's where it all starts. I do work with peak performers and I do work with uh, people who have companies and they're high achievers as well. But, you know, it's all the same stuff. It's just a process. And some people are further along in the process. So if you're committed to, um, you know, doing what it takes to just go down the rabbit hole a little bit and just uncover who you really are, what you really want, and you want tools and strategies to get there and you want to overcome limiting beliefs and all that kind of fun stuff. That's literally what I help with. So just go to forward uh, forward slash coaching and I'm happy to help and also do one-on-one sessions and things like that. So we can really cover a lot of ground in 90 minutes. Uh, I've seen some incredible things. So just reach out at mattbelair.com or matt at zenathlete.com and I'm super happy to help out. Um, that being said, thank you to my sponsors, Sync Tuition and uh, Perium. Check them out, bit.ly forward slash gamma waves and bit.ly forward slash activate health for cool free stuff. And I think that is it. You can get the lucid dreaming at forward slash lucid dreaming. Um, that's it. That's it. Oh, yeah. Check out Zen Athlete book. Give that to a friend. Give it to a family member. It's Zen music, Zen life. It's all the same thing. It's really the science to peak performance and, and figuring out who you are and what you want and how to get it from a state of fulfillment from wherever you are. So that's it. So thanks so much for coming on this episode. Uh, and we will see you tomorrow in part two. And before we do, let's just come to a quick state of coherence. Three deep breaths. So wherever you are, taking a deep breath in through your nose. Hold that breath. And just let it out slowly with all the cares and all the worries of the day. Taking another deep breath in through your nose. Hold that breath. And this time, focus on love and gratitude and peace, kindness and compassion for yourself. And just let that breath out slowly. Taking one more deep breath in through your nose. Holding that breath and just feeling love and kindness and compassion for yourself. Just send that energy to all beings, to the entire world, to everybody you've ever met. And I'm sending you that love and that energy and that support through the airwaves now. All of my love and support and encouragement so that you may be whole, peaceful, harmonious, full of self-love, abundant, um, cared for, that all of your needs be met wherever you are. Have the strength to overcome any obstacle because you are amazing. So thanks so much for listening to this episode and we'll see you again in part two.